want to welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast where we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to glean uh, wisdom for men with ministry experience for young and aspiring pastors. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana, the promised land of the North. And we have a very special guest today. You might say one of the uh, most special guests we've had, if uh, it's okay to say that. But we have uh, today Jason Camry, who was the church planting pastor of Marion RPC, and he's a fellow teaching elder here uh, on our session. So Jason, uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you uh, kind of agreeing to do this on uh, such short notice, especially after a dentist appointment that you had this morning. Um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully we won't make you blabber too much and hurt your jaw or anything like that. I'm good. All right. Good deal. Well, one of the things that uh, we occasionally like to do to uh, for can't talk today, one of the questions we like to occasionally ask our guests is uh, if they could briefly summarize kind of how the Lord brought them into ministry. And so um, I'd like to throw that question to you. How did the Lord bring you into pastoral ministry, uh, particularly in the RPCNA? Because you've got kind of a unique story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. It, it's, it's kind of a an odd journey, kind of like a circle in some ways. Um, I was uh, not a Christian when I was living in Florida and I had met my wife that had traveled. We, we only met probably like, Oh, not even a week. We had this real long distance relationship and I ended up moving to Marion, Indiana and proposing, um, and got married really not knowing anybody in Marion except my wife. And so we got married and, um, I got on the Marion police department. Uh, I was either going to go in the army and this is pre Gulf war one. So it's 1990, got married in 90. August of 90, I was either going to go in the army and um, make a career out of that or police department. So I told the recruiter that if the police department hires me, I'm going to go there first. So that's what happened. So I started uh, with uh, the Marion Police Department in November of 1990 and was there for um, about seven years. About halfway through my career, um, you know, Jenny and I uh, were struggling, um, not, you know, just non-Christians. She had a full-time job. I did. Megan was uh, our firstborn in 91. And so uh, anyhow, we started going to church. And as we were going to church, her, her aunt actually invited us. We both at the same time was like, wow, we really need the Lord. And so in a Baptist setting, right, you, you kind of go forward. And so we went forward. But I mean, we were truly converted, got into a Sunday school class, I resigned off of all these uh, things I was doing, like on a SWAT team and narcotics task force, stuff like that, and went to be a the high school, Marion High School li liaison officer, um, which gave me weekends off so I could go to church and not miss in a take-home car. So we just got involved in our Sunday school class, and we were growing. And there were just really people in the church that said, you're working well with these youth, and we can see you in ministry and, you know, at the time, you say, well, I'll pray about that and think about it. And kind of felt uh, a strong um, area of wanting to go back to school because I hadn't finished my my college degree at the time and linked that up with biblical studies because I really enjoyed studying the scriptures. So that's what I did. I, 
I resigned off the Marion Police Department, went down to uh, a Southern Baptist school, an accredited school down uh, right outside of Dothan, Alabama, which was called uh, the Baptist College of Florida. Got there and had a huge crisis of belief because I, I was naive. I thought all Baptists believed the same. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, wow, we got this guy teaching this. And then I go to my Old Testament professor and go, hmm, that's that's antithetical. They can't both be right. You know, and I'm like, is this what's going on here? But what actually happened was the God, God used all that because there were um, a couple of guys that I became friends with that were very into the founders movement and the Southern Baptist denomination, which got me into reformed theology. Sure. So I was pretty much convinced from my uh, experience in my undergraduate degree that at least the five points of Calvinism was correct. I came back to my original church in Marion was a youth pastor. Um, they didn't really put me through any kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, a lot of times you go through uh, some type of testing or some kind of evaluation of your theology. But since they knew me and I was converted there, they just kind of assumed that I uh, was just like them. But as I was teaching there for a year, uh, they uh, said, um, oh, you're a Calvinist. You, you can't work here if you're a Calvinist. So they ended up firing me over that. Oh, man. And um, when I got fired, then I was really like, what am I going to do? So then I thought, well, I'll church plant. Uh, a Baptist church with the London Baptist Confession of 1689. I'm like, I'm going to do this right. Da, 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 da. So quick, uh, just a, a real quick story. A, a lady who was under church discipline from Sycamore was coming. I didn't know she was under church discipline, but she was coming to our Bible study. She goes, I really like these Psalms. Would you consider putting Psalm uh, worship in your, in your new church plant? And I, I'm like, well, I've never heard of that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Oh, um, go down and check this little church out in Kokomo. And uh, it's called Sycamore. So I went down there on a Sunday morning, Jenny and I and my family, and Barry York was uh, was the pastor there at the time. And he was preaching out Deuteronomy. And, and Deuteronomy is like doing this double predestination sermon. And I'm like, where in the world <laughs> would you hear like a sermon like that? Like, you know, to me, it was like, this is so refreshing. And wow, you know, and so we end up talking a little bit after the service and he got my phone number. So he kept calling me, like, wanting to have lunch with me on Wednesdays. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I'd come down, we'd have lunch, and it just got, kind of got into, like, a, a good friendship to where I just felt like I was doing something that the Lord hadn't sent me to do because I was doing it out of anger and frustration within the denomination I was in. And then my relationship with Barry, I came along and just was like, well, I just said to him, if you would help me, I need more mentoring. I'll come to church. I won't plant. And um, I, I just need more mentoring. I don't have to be a pastor. I'll help the church. And he and we had met with the session. We transferred our members. Well, actually, the Baptist church wouldn't transfer our membership because of the immersion question. So we came by statement of faith. And that's so wait, how wait, I wait, wait, wait. They, they fired you but kept your membership? Yeah. Well, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right, sorry. Keep it, keep going. It wasn't. It wasn't. And it's not like you know. I had well at the at Sunny Cross Baptist Church. Yeah, I, I did lose a lot of friends over it because the pastor after I left started teaching um, uh, sermons on called the dangerous divisive doctrines of Calvinism. I used to have a, a couple of cassette tapes of his sermons I, I had given to Barry for him to listen to. They were just so heretical. But mm. anyways. Um, so it got us into the RP Church, and so from there, 
uh, I became a, a, a night chaplain at the Kogamo Rescue Mission, having a, a lot of ministry with men for about two and a half years. Uh, then went to um, Dyer, Indiana, part-time, driving up, just taking one or two classes. Um, it was taken under care by Kenneth's credentials of, uh, of our presbytery, Great Lakes Golf. And then it took me about, I don't know, was it four years or something like that to do the three uh, for the MDiv. And then when I graduated in May of 09, I received a call to church plant in Marion. So that's how that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that church plant sprang from um, Sycamore. Were you uh, were you involved in the Bible studies up here um, in what, 96 or something like that? So I didn't come to Sycamore until um, October of 2001. So they had okay. already had um, established a group of people in Marion. And there was a pretty good sized group of people that were coming to Sycamore by the time I got there. To be honest with you, I knew some of them, like uh, Joe Holderman, I had known from Marion. He worked at the GM plant. Um, so I had some contacts. The, the other thing about why Marion kind of fit really well is that, you know, Jenny grew up in Marion. Um, mm-hmm. uh, her fa- family's from Marion. All her relatives were there. I was a police officer there. So we did have a lot of contacts. But the interesting thing about that is, you know, they tried to call like two or three different people to the uh, church planting before they called me. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they called, they tried to call Rut Etheridge. I think they had, they were talking to David Hansen a little bit. Um, and, uh, Tom Gray, uh, we interviewed with him. So there was like all of these guys that were, and, and I was basically, I was probably just going to stay with Barry for, for a while, just kind of be the associate there. And, and we didn't know that he was going to go to the seminary, obviously, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, I was just going to like hang out with that type of ministry in, in Kokomo, which I didn't have a problem with. But the problem, the, the funny thing about it is, is that everybody said no. Their loss. Well, <laughs> yeah. So we can't find anybody to do this job. Hey, Camry, would you like to do it? And I'd be like, well, let me pray. Sure. I, I have good connections. So some kind of the way the Lord like closed doors for other mm-hmm. guys and used the other places in the in the church which is perfectly fine you know not saying anything um bad about anybody but just saying that's how god moves people around sometimes we have ideas like hey we'll do this but then doors close and open for others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well but it was those, a, it those was guys a great could place. have uh they could have gone to the promised land of the north but uh they yeah they out, right that's, so that's exactly right. that that kind of ties into our first official question uh that we have here so you know, you're you come from Kokomo to plant the church here in Marion, and uh, this is a question that Joe and I have been wanting to ask for a while, but um, it's not it's not overly um, practiced, I suppose, not overly popular, however way you want to put it. Um, but you had the unique privilege of kind of being bivocational in the uh, while you were church planting. So our question is, you know, how was that as an experience for you? Uh, what tips and strategies might you give guys who may be called into bivocational ministry? And, you know, how did you protect yourself from burnout? Because working a full-time job and trying to be a pastor, that's uh, that's quite the calling, quite the effort, um, and quite the stress. Yeah, Yeah. so, um, so let me set it up this way uh, and just give some uh, some of my anecdotal insight. But I do think that it's worthy of like consideration for other people, church planning. One is that I believe that the session, Barry, the session at Sycamore 
helped us in a great way. They, um, I was a deacon. It's it's almost like I've held a lot of, probably all the positions in the church at some time in my career. Like I was assistant to the pastor. uh, I was associate pastor. I was a deacon at at Sycamore. And then I was called to be an elder. And so when we were called, Scott Hunt and myself and uh, Joe Marsis to be elders for church planting, we actually came on the session of Sycamore and were trained by that session to know how to operate as a session, right? Um, taking guys that didn't have experience in, in working as a session together and then, and then putting us together, watching, being mentored, that, which, and then, you know, all of the questions that would come up with the marrying work too, uh, would go through that session. So we had that like, um, TBG or whatever, temporary governing body, which was the session of Sycamore over the work in Marion, which, which was extremely helpful. The other thing is, um, I, I, I never wanted to burden the church with trying to have to pay, uh, the pastor, especially getting off the ground full time. Right. So we really looked, I would rather put that into a building or put that into the ministry than having to pay me. So, so basically um, they would pay me like part-time for like part-time work, but I would go out and find some other job. And um, it just so happened to be that I had connections um, at the, uh, in Grant County. So I went to the probation department and it was a, it was a good transition for that. So we were able to find a place to worship or actually Jenny's dad, who wasn't a Christian gave us his building for a while. He had a, a catering building that wasn't being used. And then once we moved from that, we moved to like a storefront. And I had a connection with another guy in town who actually gave us a really good deal on that. And uh, so that's how we transitioned into that storefront for a couple of years before this building um, came available. But um, I I can't say like I was perfect in keeping myself from being burned out because I think there towards the end, especially with my dad passing away. And then my family moving up and, you know, there was some difficulties with, with all of that, that kind of got me into like, you know, so I took a sabbatical there um, at the end, um, which kind of gave me some rest, but yeah, it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, strategies. So I guess, it, yeah, you, you can answer strategies this way. I suppose um, if you had to do it over again, like what would you do to protect yourself from burnout? Um, yeah, I think, you know, like delegation, um, I think there for a, a while it was like Scott and Allison and myself before the Fishers came, um, were primarily doing most of the legwork, right? And you know, you have you have a lot of people driving in, a lot of people coming from different places, so it's hard to get them incorporated in doing all of that work. But maybe more delegation and getting people more responsibility to, to do things um would have been would have been helpful. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. yeah. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. It was just, mm-hmm. that's just the way it was. Jason, as you just kind of look, look toward the uh, state of the church, maybe even the RP church in particular as it is, do you think uh, bivocational ministry is, is going to be something more popular and needed? Or do you, th- you know, is that just something you just have no clue or do you, um, you know, from conversations you've had with guys, do you hear guys thinking about it more? Do you have any thoughts uh, forecasting uh, 
wisely as as to what the future could hold with bivocational ministry? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I I think it's a case by case basis. I think that um, a bivocational pastor for a period of time can be helpful, right? Uh, especially in in working in certain areas that um, as they're trying to build the church. I, I think it, it, my experience has been is getting a good core group of people that are solid, that are willing to work through difficulties that a church plant has. If if you remember, because um, we were trying for the um, uh, 100 by 2020 as a denomination, trying to get 100 congregations by 2020. Marion was part of that 100. And when we would come to Presbytery, just in the Great Lakes Golf Presbytery, you know, you you hear a lot of, I don't want to say horror stories, but you hear a lot of difficulties that church plants were having within our denomination. And my testimony is that, and, and I think other people would substantiate that, is that we really never had, as Mary, we really never had any difficulties financially. We didn't have any difficulties with our core group of people. There wasn't really any controversy that, you know, sometimes when people are planting churches, you get... Um, some people that are more strict in some of the reform stuff and some people that are less strict or whatever. And then sometimes that causes some controversy within the church plant too. It, it seemed like the Lord gave the church plant and Marion like one mind. We're all on the same page. And so there wasn't really any uh, problems there in the first uh, five or six years um, uh, of the church plant that, that I can say that, you know, it, it caused division. So there was no division and so when I go to give my report at Presbytery, I was always just like, well, uh, things are going really well. Um, we've got uh, a lot of money in the bank. Uh, we've got a lot of people coming and uh, we're really happy with what's going on. I mean, that was basically my report every year. People were like, wow. I, I, I had people come up to me and say, I, I think you're the healthiest church plant in our denomination right now. I, I've hmm. had people say that to me. Wow. No, yeah. I, I wonder if, uh, you know, the Lord obviously used you for that. But I, I also wonder if a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were meeting together as a Bible study for so many years that a lot of those kinks may have been worked out. And, you know, some of the names you've already mentioned, like we uh, we've got a real blessing, Jason, to be able to be, you know, these uh, this flock's elders. And they're just a yes. great group of people like the Lord has really blessed. the. I, when I say promised land of the north, I mean, it's tongue in cheek, but I truly do mean it. This is a wonderful congregation. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I, I agree on all parts with you, you know, because I think Barry initially was starting uh, some work at IWU back in all, all the way back in like 92, 93, 94. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I didn't really come until 2001. Um, and my my primary focus there was just getting my seminary complete and working at the re- rescue mission and doing work. In Kokomo, although I did support a lot of the stuff, and you know, as a social, or as assist, I was assistant to the pastor. It's kind of like the office. Remember, Dwayne <laughs> um, Schrute's always like, "Am I the manager?" No, or you're the assistant to the manager, right? <laughs> Something like that. Mm-hmm. So I was like the assistant to Barry, but I would go with him, like on these ministry calls, right, or that, over in Marion or other places or whatever. I was always able to like just tag along and and, and be. Um, taught that way. So, yeah, I think, you know, by the time 2009 rolls around, right? So look how many years you have there from 94 or so, 93 to 2009. I mean, 
yeah, a lot of things had been worked out. You had a great core group of people. And that might be something that you might consider too. Because sometimes we like to move very fast. Oh, we're a preaching station. And then next year you might think, oh, uh, uh, we're not going to be a preaching station. Let's let's be a um, a mission church, right? And um, it's interesting too, because like uh, even in law enforcement and stuff, when people seem like they have this compression of time, like, Oh, I got to get this done or I got to handle the situation in a certain way. And actually um, in, in law enforcement, it's called de-escalation. Why are you compressing time? Uh, actually move back, take your time, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And I think uh, in church plant too, um, you might, you might have kind of like, Hey, uh, we don't have to compress so quickly and push people so quickly. Let's, let's, let's take it a little bit more uh, slowly. Now I'm not saying like that's, I mean, you have to be open to what the Holy Spirit's doing, things like that. I'm just saying it could be a consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you and I could probably talk shop about Marianne for a long time. But uh, for the sake of time, I think, Joe, unless you've got anything else on this question, maybe we jump to the next one. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was good there, too. And I'll just say uh, I, I caught the the little statement about Barry taking Jason with him everywhere and yep. practicing yep, the uh, <laughs> the old with him principle that we got from Ken Smith. But no, that's good. Uh, Jason, the question we ask everybody, every guest that's come on here uh, that, that we love to hear about and learn about from the variety of men uh, that God gives to his church is just what is your own kind of philosophy of preaching? So like, uh, we all have a very similar, really the same uh, theology of preaching, what what we think it is, what it's given to accomplish. But just in terms of, of your own style, how Jason Camry preaches and why do you preach uh, the way that you do? Uh, that's a good question. I might not like have all of the seminary answers on that. And, and so it's just more like just. And I think what you're asking me is like, what's my practice? Is that right? Sure. Is that what you're yeah, saying? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so l- let me just say, like, I've always felt like, um, and I think this is important for anyone that's in ministry, is to always do a, just a real honest self-appraisal of your gifts. Like, what, where, does, where, do I, where do I see God really using me? And what do I really feel like it's not just comfortable with, but where do I really see him blessing uh, that that and where do I really need to work on and what am I really praying God to actually gift me as I go and so um, I've always been more uh, like um, Sunday school evangelistic going out in the street and it probably comes from my training as being a police officer for uh, as many years I've been I'm, I'm very comfortable working at the rescue mission talking to guys confront people about you know, where they are, having actually the the right apologetic, the right answers to the questions that are actually being talked about today. Those types of things I've always felt very comfortable with. I've always felt like I've struggled a little bit, like behind the pulpit, not that I didn't want to do it or not that, you know, um, I, I just feel like that's not, if I was praying for giftedness, I was like being like, God, please help me this, this, uh, this Sunday or hey Lord, please help me with this sermon. And so, you know, sermons used to and still do have to percolate in my mind. So like whatever passage that I was going to preach on or whatever book I was in, you know, and I read it a few times 
uh, pray about it. Then I'd probably read a couple of commentaries. And I've always worked out uh, from a, man, a manuscript. So I try to type out everything. And I think early on in my uh, preaching, um, I was really connected to that manuscript, sometimes re- reading too much instead of just preaching, you know, or just allowing things more spontaneity, more spontaneity to come from what you've already studied. Um, ironically, I'm not preaching as much uh, as I used to. I feel more uh, uh, more of the ability to have uh, the spontaneity um, now than I did before, um, which is good. I think it's just because of experience, but I still work off of a manuscript. And yeah, I just really see the purpose of preaching as, you know, basically fulfilling the Great Commission and then also sanctification for the believers that are there. Because I, I and and then speaking to and helping to try to have help, help people grow in Christ uh, and uh, in doctrine and you know fulfill the first uh, catechism question you know to love God with our whole heart and serve Him. Yeah, Amen. Um, other than just pure experience, do you do you know anything else? You know, for for guys who who may uh, be typing a full manuscript and using that. Was there anything else that you've done over time uh, that that you could think of, and maybe there's maybe there's not, maybe it just literally was just growth and comfort and experience. Was there anything that you noticed that helped you um, have more freedom in the pulpit uh, and and not read as you as you put it, but to preach with more freedom and spontaneity? Was there anything? You, you've been able over the years to put your finger on it. Yeah, that was helpful to me in doing that, or was it just pure? over time yeah um well obviously more experience you know i i've always felt like uh and maybe this is just because you know like when you put a paper together and you turn it in in a seminary level class or you know a master's degree class you know your professor always says well i'm not really interested in what you think but i would like to know what other people think about this topic that have already you know gone before so you're always like quoting somebody or So if you stay with like reliable sources, (laughs) which I always try to stay, you know, with just really good sources, you know, like if I'm in the Psalms, I I always, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 look to Spurgeon or or other people have wrote good commentaries or, or, and just, you know, those types of things. So I guess where I'm saying, like, if I would read too much, sometimes I put too many quotes in Mm. because I felt the necessary, I felt like I was like, I've got to prove my point, but I, you probably don't care what I think. So here's another guy, or here's what Calvin says, right. or here's what Bobbing, or here's what Bobbing says, or you know whatever uh, Woodius says this, you know, and then then I think, well, man, that should really make the point. But sometimes I found like you know people are looking at me like, okay, well that's more that's like a seminary class. Thank you. <laughs> we could have taken that. We could have yeah. taken that in your Sunday school class and I'll take, give me the quote. I'll go home and read it. So I think, um, take making less, uh, you know, my wife's actually helped me out with that, you know, less mm-hmm. quotes, mm-hmm. um, just put it in your own words. Hey, can you, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, Spurgeon's right here, but just put it in your own words, you know, yeah. uh, and that's, that's more helpful. So along with just feeling more comfortable in the pulpit um, not trying to have to prove something. I think in my mind at, at early on, I was like, I got to prove this. Like I have to prove it. Like now I don't have to prove anything really. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. Just trust and just put the truth out there. 
Yeah, that's uh, that, that's good. Um, we're gonna kind of take uh, question three and four, and I'm actually gonna compress them into one. Um, so we'll we'll see how this works. But it, you mentioned, you know, in this last question about in preaching, how you feel like your gifts are more suited towards um, evangelism and apologetics, Sunday school, that kind of thing. And I think uh, what's evident to anybody who knows you is that you do have a gift um, with people, and in particular with troubled people. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from your experience in law enforcement and you're, you know, you're obviously very passionate about law enforcement. So, um, as I compress these two questions into one, um, you know, maybe tell us a little bit of your background as far as what you're currently doing right now, um, in the criminal justice world, why you're passionate about bringing the biblical worldview of justice into a secular understanding of justice. And then maybe talk about, uh, the jail ministry that you've been spearheading here at Marion. Yeah. Um, so that's one big question with yep. several sub points. Yep. 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 I'm cheating here with hit, that. That's okay. I'll try to hit it. Um, so, you know, this Aaron, the other thing too, and just let me just say this off to the side. I think men in ministry should also always evaluate, like, you know, is it their time to, to move on to something else? So, um, or there is God moving you to something else. And there's a door open for that where, you know, um, I, I, I was, I know that like churches go through just different stages. And so as I was praying about um, just what the Lord wanted me to do, I, I felt like I had already taken Marion probably as far as I could do, I could take it and that there needed to be somebody else that could take it into that maturity level. Small kids come in with, a, we have a lot of, small kids now and stuff like that. And my wife and I just, were counting. We have, we have 25 kids under 18. Yeah. 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 And I'm just like, I'm so appreciative of you and um, just coming in and doing what you're doing because, um, and I think this is what I'm trying to say. The church is not mine. I planted the church, but I have no ownership over that church. I don't, I have never felt like uh, it's my church. I came for a season uh, nobody really wanted a plant. Um, I made myself available because I felt like the Lord did call me there and it gave open those doors for that. And then, you know, um, a, a, a police officer friend of mine that I've known for 28 years, so he's running for sheriff. I help him out. And then he's like, will you help me uh, at the sheriff's department? And we can do this. And he's a Christian man. We were in a Bible study, actually, when we were talking about running for sheriff together. And I prayed about that. And I thought that, that this coincides exactly with what God, what I think God wants to do with the church so that it would be able to free up. Because I can't, I wouldn't be able to do both. I didn't want to go back into another bivocational situation. I wanted to give my whole heart to either one or the other. So um, what I'm doing now is that with uh, Sheriff Garcia, who's a, a very strong Christian, is wanting to bring um, as much gospel-centered um, uh, and and actually reformed-centered understanding to the office of civil magistrate, and it's multifaceted. It's uh, allowing basically to, um, having uh, a, a good Bible studies that that take place in the jail with people from our church. There are other churches that that come in and, and do Bible studies. I'm thankful for that, um, but they have different persuasions of theology, and some stuff is is mixed. It's not as not as great as others, but that's fine. I'm glad I'm glad the gospel's going forth with everybody that comes in there. But it's freed up people in our church to participate. 
And then the, the other thing too, is just the interactions that I have. Um, and obviously, you know, Scott, who won the election for prosecutor, is a huge thing, too, for Grant County, because now you have the the chief prosecutor who's a reformed Christian, and he works, you know, uh, the things that he has to do as far as prosecuting crimes and justice. I, I hold those people um, pre-trial um, before they go to be adjudicated, but I also hold them after they've been adjudicated, but also relationships with judges, relationships with community corrections, probation, parole, and all of those things. Yeah, it's, it's worth saying real channel. quick, because not all our yeah. listeners know that you're the captain of the Grant County Jail. That's right. Right. I'm the detention director. Okay. I'm on the executive staff. I hold the rank of a captain. There's five captains, a, a chief deputy, and a sheriff. But in my position, I, I answer directly to the sheriff mm-hmm. for most of the things that happen. And the sheriff and I are on, are on the same page in what we... Uh, want done. In fact, we pray together every morning. We've never missed a day of prayer while we were there. He's been sick. And so if he's not there, I don't pray. But when he's there, we we pray together. We talk about things. I've been able to uh, um, introduce not only biblical leadership material for the staff of the jail, but we've also hired a bunch of people in the jail. We've hired somebody from our own congregation to be a jailer, a young man. Um, who actually comes to the Sunday school class. So I also teach a class on, I'd say it's mercy ministry oriented mm-hmm. because mercy ministries, the umbrella and jail ministry fits underneath all of that. But we're talking about the same people. So not only if I'm talking about somebody that's in jail, usually they have the same um, circumstances, characteristics of life, those types of things that you would be dealing with people who might not be in jail, but are in poverty. Right. But also my, uh, my, my, you know, my, um, my time at the Kokomo Rescue Mission helps me with that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then maybe we'll just round this out before we start to land here. Um, with the, with the jail ministry, the things that you've got going on uh, at the jail itself, um, what are some ways that our listeners can uh, pray for you and then uh, pray for the Marian congregation as well? Yeah, so um, first of all, just pray that we would continue to be faithful to the gospel message going forth into the jail and to these uh, different people that um, are in darkness, uh, spiritual darkness, and in some cases, literal darkness. Our jail has been, um, the the Department of, Indiana Department of Corrections has come in and and they have to do an inspection and, and some of our jails are dark and needs more light. And it was built back in, the 80s, we have the fourth oldest jail in the state of Indiana. It's in disrepair. Um, we have a county council who have been tasked to to build a new jail, but they're saying it's too expensive. We're, we were 363 last week uh, in a 274-man jail, meaning that we're almost 100 over. We got people sleeping on floors and what we call the range. We have we two two two-person cells. We have three people in. Um, they have to share bathrooms, things like that. There's fights that take place. And I w- would like to say too, um, and I was telling my wife this, you know, I, I was some things I, it, the, um, the, the health, the mental health crisis in this country, uh, is, uh, extreme, is exacerbated in your county jails. Uh, we hold a lot of people who are mentally ill, uh, mentally ill for a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe it's organic. They were born that way. Behavioral didn't develop. 
Um, but then there's also a cross section that people who are, have addiction problems that create mental illness. It's funny when you talk to people that are experts in the situation, in the, in the field, you know, is it mental illness that creates addiction or addiction that creates mental illness? Some people, they can't give you a straight answer on that. It's probably both. And then there's also demonic activity, which underlies a lot of that. And if I could, if I, I have a video of something, I was like, man, I need to show everybody this. I, I can't because of privacy concerns. But mm-hmm. I, I think if people saw what I saw um, two days ago um, of, about certain individuals that are just walking your streets, and this is small town Marion in a, uh, in a red, where are we, blue state? We're a conservative state. I can't remember. I always get red pilled. Okay. Yeah. So we're red state. <laughs> um, yeah. Small time Marion in a red state. And we're all compartmentalized. And if you knew that this person or these people are walking the streets at midnight, you would be like, what in the world is going on? And, you know, I've had that reality brought home to me just in this last eight months, just like, wow, it's worse than I thought. It is worse than I thought. And so, you know, um, I had a New Testament professor, my undergraduate degree, it was like, you know, what restrains evil? You know, the Lord restrains evil. How does he restrain evil? Well, ultimately, he restrains evil by converting people from darkness to light. That's how evil gets restrained. There's other ways that, you know, civil magistrates restrain evil. In Romans chapter 13, we we uh, we persecute the uh, the evil to protect the good. As it says there, we're ministers of the Lord and we're to do our job. But that's, that's the best that we can do as far as Romans 13 is. But the best thing that can happen is people being converted. And I think that's the most thing. That's the biggest prayer request I have is that if that that you know, people pray for the conversions of these people trapped in um, the addictions uh, that this society, this fentanyl crisis, uh, this meth crisis, this heroin crisis that we have. When I was on the Marion Police Department, I'll just give you one more thing and then I'll, I'll let you guys ask me more questions. But I was on a drug task force for a year, meaning that I worked undercover. I'd be gone for days. All I dealt with um, in that uh, scenario, um, 94, 95, 96, was buying was buying um, marijuana. And if I bought anything more than a pound, I was dealing with people from Mexico in Marion. So I came directly from Mexico. And uh, our task force made money. We loved dealing with marijuana because marijuana dealers always had money. We could confiscate that and then buy supplies out of it. But crack cocaine. So I dealt a lot of with a lot of different crack cocaine cases. I never did a heroin case, never did a meth case, never did an LSD case, never did any of that. In those couple of years that I worked on the task force, it was either marijuana or crack. Today, our task force now are dealing with fentanyl, heroin, and meth. And those drugs, even though I would say, you know, uh, pot's bad, uh, crack cocaine's bad, right? These drugs are, are another mm-hmm. level. And there's another level coming that's, uh, that's worse than fentanyl that Narcan doesn't work. And there's, there's, they're cutting things with what's called tank and they're calling it tank, but it's going to be some type of tranquilizers they give horses and fentanyl won't work with that. And that's on the forefront here. It's, uh, disturbing stuff but like you said uh if the lord would be pleased to send revival by his spirit that could all reverse um in a, in a near instant and so thank you for enlightening us and the things going on there and likely in all of our communities after the 
wee midnight hours uh, that we may not see in the broad daylight, uh, but that the civil magistrates in our communities are dealing with uh, day in and day out. So that was a, a good reminder of that. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the other thing that we do uh, with all of our listeners is we ask a final mystery kind of theological or biblical question. And in light of a, an upcoming interview that we have scheduled for sometime in November, we uh, decided to go with the following. We're going and, and and maybe depending, we may ask everyone in November this that we interview as well. So it, it may be more than four this time around. But I'll, I'll give the context, Jason, for the question, and then uh, we're going to seek to settle the the debate that I'll I'll put forward to you uh, with your answer combined with uh, whatever answers we see, receive from other other ministers. So in First Samuel chapter twenty eight. Uh, many of us are familiar with the scene where Saul goes to the witch of Endor and yeah. consults her and asks her, uh, you know, essentially to what eventually happens. She she calls up Saul and there's debate. Samuel. Uh, so, yeah, Samuel. Sorry, Samuel. Sorry. Too many S's here. Um, so, yes, yeah, Saul asks uh, for for Samuel. Uh, to be called up here. And so the witch, she calls up Samuel, uh, what the text said, but there's debate over, is this actually Samuel or is this some demonic manifestation uh, deception uh, that appears to be Samuel? So is this actually Samuel that the witch of Endor calls up or is it a demonic deception uh what what what's jason's take on this and if you have no take if you're unsure that's a fair enough answer as well but we're seeking um, to settle the debate yeah just give me the give me the um first samuel 28 yep mm -hmm. verses three and the narrative runs all the way through really verse 25 but really starts hitting hitting ahead there in verse 11 and following yeah you don't mind if I read it real fast, do you? No, yeah, go for it. Let's see. Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke, saying, um, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul, the king, said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman uh, said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed. The Philistines are waging war. God has departed from me. Um, Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and you've become, has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. I, I would say that um, my, my, and I'm a pretty, a literal guy. <laughs> I, I'm not, I haven't went to the, uh, the the Hebrew here, um, Samuel's capitalized. Uh, I'm I'm going to say that this is Samuel. I'm going to say that Samuel knew the will of the Lord. 
um, he was speaking truth. That was actually the, 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 the kingdom was torn from him. And um, so that's my answer. Very good. There, there is our first, there is our first vote vote. We shall see how the debate falls out. <laughs> Indeed. We shall. I, I think, you know, people might say coming up, like, you know, you know, is he coming up out of a pit? You know, mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, when this up and down kind of thing, I don't, I'm not necessarily, I, I don't put too much into that. I, it's by everything that the text is actually saying in the English right here, it would seem to me that it's Samuel. That's probably how I would take it. Unless I could read like some old dead man who's way smarter than me that could give me a great <laughs> argument, right? And yeah, just don't just don't try and resurrect him from the dead like the witch of Endor here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I won't go to I won't go to any diviner, like, yeah, palm reader, right? Yeah. Hey, palm reader, give me somebody from the dead to tell me if this first Samuel passage is Samuel or not. Yeah. No, I'm not I won't. Be. Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that, Jason. That uh, that, that's comforting to me. Yeah, good. especially I'm on your sessions. So yeah, that should, that yep, 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 yep. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, well, this has been uh, another episode of the Blue Banter uh, podcast. Our guest has been uh, Jason Camry, a teaching elder here at Marian Reformed Presbyterian Church. And, uh, you know, we do call it the promised land. Oh, I call it the promised land of the north. Uh, but even the promised land had all kinds of uh, problems. And uh, the Lord is good enough to solve our issues as he solved the issues of old. So be in prayer for us as a community. If you like this podcast, you can rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use. You can share this episode on social media. If you have a question you'd like to you like us to ask the pastors that we have on the podcast, or you'd like us to interview your pastor, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com, bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. But until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. Yeah.